Good evening, everybody. Good to see you all up close and personal. Great to uh, be together. This, uh, this whole in the round thing is as weird for me as it is for you. So, uh, But man, we've just had a great weekend. And um, I, I'll tell you, I was in tears actually Friday night as I was here and watching more kids, more junior high and high school students celebrate Jesus than were than the number of people we had in our church when it started. And um, to see that energy and to see that excitement is just really, really exciting. You know, the the next generation is going to get the keys. And either they're going to pry them out of our cold, dead hands, or we're going to hand it off to them. And I think what Fuse represents is that we love you students. We're thrilled that you're part of this church. We're not just glad you're here right now. We're glad that you're part of the church. And uh, that's a big deal to us. It's partly why we're building next door. And we have kind of a milestone to celebrate in your program. We try to keep you updated. We just passed a really cool milestone of we're more, now more than halfway to our goal on Home Away From Home. That's the funding for our project next door. So that's cool. So we want to be an influence in this, uh, in this community. We want to be an influence with students. And I'm thrilled that we can um, celebrate here together tonight. I've got a special message that's really for you high school students. And I know it's been a long weekend and a long day. There's a lot of sunburn. <laughs> and uh, I, need, I need about 30 more minutes, all right? Can you give me 30 more minutes? Yeah. And, and what I've done tonight is tried to put together a message for you while everyone else listens in. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at it from Genesis, and uh, let me pray for us as we begin. Father, thank you so much uh, for your word. Thank you for how you bless us and love us, and uh, God, thank you for this time to gather. Thank you for everything that this weekend has represented. God, we uh, commit our time to you. Uh, We celebrate you. We honor you. We pray you would use this time to shape and form us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, before I dive into God's word, I actually have... I have one more little bone to pick with some people in this room. Where are my ninth grade girls that that were at our house? There's a couple of you here. All right, a couple of you. Where are some more of my ninth grade girls? Where are you? Are you the only two? Did they leave? There's some of you back there. Okay. Tell everyone how you spent your morning. No, nice and loud where everyone can hear it. How did you spend your morning? They cleaned up toilet paper because this is what my house looked like when I looked outside this morning. (laughs) Saran wrap, forks, toilet paper, the whole deal. Go to the next picture, and this is what it looked like when I was driving away. I told them, I said, listen, I've got to go to church. My wife's not cleaning this up. You were the target, so get busy. Here's a rake. And, And this whole time, we thought it was the 10th grade boys that did it, right? And it turned out... The people that did it were much more vicious. Do you know who did it? Snakes. Dirty, rotten snakes. It was the senior girls. Listen, the senior girls. No? No, listen, listen. Those forks were well too organized. There's no way it was guys. Who was it, Carrie? It was, it, was, it was a joint effort, okay. Yeah, well, nice neighbors. That's bull. Anyway, it made for a fun time, though. So, all right, enough of that. All right, so, so students, I'm talking to you tonight, and you've gotten to know each other pretty well, I think, through this experience. So that's kind of the whole idea. You, 
guys, you learned some of your buddies like really snore bad. Didn't you notice that? And ladies, you noticed that some of your friends like really fart a lot. And uh, guys, I don't know if you knew that girls farted, but they do. I live with a bunch of them. They do it. And um, it's just as bad as when you do, right? So you learn a lot about each other. Here's what I want you to do, students, is I want you to think about somebody that you would consider a close friend right now. Maybe there's someone that's sitting next to you or here with you tonight. Think about a good friend and try to imagine where they'll be someday. It's pretty hard. Like I think back to uh, one of my good friends who I first met when I was in, I think, ninth grade. I met him in a weight training class. His name's Tyler. Met him in Cherry Creek High School in uh, weight training. He was kind of scrawny but thought he was tough, you know, wore his hat backwards. When he got his license, he was the guy that was driving around with the windows down and the, you know, hip-hop cranked. You're like, I don't know if you're really a hip-hop guy, but that was kind of his thing. And that buddy Tyler preached here last week. Tyler Johnson is the lead pastor of Redemption Church. He's the pastor that's kind of providing a lot of vision and energy and direction for this Redemption Church thing that's 10 congregations, over 8,000 people meeting across the state. My best friend from high school is the lead pastor of Redemption Church. So students, you have no idea what God might want to do through you. You have no idea. And it's not because you're not smart, because you're really smart. And it's not because you're not creative. It's just you're not old enough, and enough life hasn't passed. So let me be just an old guy here for a minute and say you have no idea what God might want to do through you for the sake of his world. You have no idea. And I don't want you to miss it. Because so many people miss it. So many people don't get in on it. So many people exchange the future they could have for something that's much, much worse. So that's what we're going to talk about here tonight. Um, We're going to talk about something that I was introduced to a few years ago by a guy named Andy Stanley, and it's rung with me ever since. We're going to talk about something that's really small. It's a small thing that you would kind of think like, gosh, what difference does this make? Is this really that powerful? But the thing we're going to talk about tonight actually has the power to shape the whole trajectory of your life. In fact, students, your parents, for the most part, are where they are in life because of their ability to handle the things that I'm going to talk about tonight. Some of you students have unbelievable amounts of pain and hurt and loss in your life because of how somebody mismanaged what I'm going to talk about tonight. Some of you, you found this has been just an amazing weekend. You've been focused on Jesus. You've been excited. You've had all these great conversations. But then even just already, you've started to face these temptations from outside and even from within your own heart. And you're going, how can this happen, right? This fuse, it's so amazing. And I love Jesus. And yet I still find myself drawn into these other things. Where does that come from? It comes from where we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about tonight are appetites. Appetites. It could seem small, but it's actually huge. Here's the big idea tonight, is that your response to your appetites will determine the direction and quality of your life. Your response to your appetites will determine, not just influence, determine the direction and the quality of your life. Some of you have had parents who went after an appetite 
Some of you have had family members who went after an appetite and you go, how could a, how could a, how could a person do that to me? Because they loved an appetite more than they loved you and it shaped the direction and quality of their life and yours. There's a lot at stake tonight. So what are some appetites? Well, there's food and there's sex and there's food and there's, oh, there's just two. No, there's really more. There's a whole list of appetites. There's food, right? Well, that's the thing we think of first, right? You just hunger for food. You have an appetite for food. Are you hungry? Ah, well, I'm not so hungry, right? We, we, that's what we think of when we think of, of an appetite is food. But there's also appetites for sex. There's appetites for pleasure. There's appetites for progress, right? Some of you have an appetite to just make things better and continually improve. And that's why you kind of, you know, you, you started learning an instrument when you were young maybe. And yet you keep working on it and keep working on it. Even though it's not always that fun, you just keep going because you want to see progress. Or you work at your sport or you work at the other things that you do. Some of you have started to get jobs and you try to just work as hard as you can. And you've gotten a little promotion. And even though it's like, you're like, gosh, is this how much money I make? When I get a promotion, I get like a 20 cent raise. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> But, but you want to see progress. That's an appetite. There's an appetite for responsibility. Right? Some of you, you feel like, I'm an adult now. <laughs> Don't treat me like a kid. And you're trying to convince your parents to give you more freedom, to have less of a curfew, to give you more access to technology, to give you more responsibility, to make more of your own decisions because responsibility is an appetite. We have an appetite for money. We need money, don't we? And it feels good to earn money and to make money and to see money and resources grow. That's an appetite. We have appetites for love. We have appetites for acceptance. We want to be known. We want people to know us. We want to love them. We want people to accept us as we are. We have appetites for recognition, right? We want to do a good job and have someone notice it. That's an appetite. We have appetites for success, right? We want to keep winning. We want to try to succeed. And we have appetites for things. We have appetites for stuff, right? This is why you love to go to the mall is because if you actually have some money, you can get more things with it, right? And, and that's what, those are all appetites. Now, here's the thing we got to understand about appetites tonight. Three things, and this is going to kind of lead us into this passage, is three things we need to know about appetites. The first one is that appetites are created by God but distorted by sin. God created them, sin distorted them. So all the appetites that I just mentioned, they're all created by God. They're all good things, right? Isn't hunger a good thing? Isn't food a good thing? Isn't sex a good thing? Isn't money a good thing? Yeah, it is. It's all created by God, this sense of pleasure, this sense of success, material stuff. We're physical creatures in a physical world, so physical stuff is a good thing, and yet it's distorted by sin. God made it. Sin broke it. And so sometimes we think that all these things that we have appetites for are bad things, right? People try to say, hey, you shouldn't want that. That's bad stuff. Listen, it's not bad. It's just broken. God made them. Sin distorted them. Now, the second thing you need to see about appetites is that appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. Appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. Let's say that together, actually, all right? Appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. What does that mean? That means that if you have a hunger for one of those things, as soon as you have it met, it won't be long before you want it again. Right? Have you ever had this experience where you, you, know, you eat this meal, maybe on Thanksgiving or some other special occasion, you have this big, huge meal, and you feel like, gosh, i got to loosen my belt now. i got to go put on sweatpants. 
Like you sit there and you go, I am never, ever eating again. I'm just absolutely stuffed. I feel sick. I feel disgusting. I'm never eating again. And three hours later, what are you doing? Is there anything in the fridge? Right? Why? Because appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. Right? You can have money. You can have success. You can have pleasure. You can have love. You can have acceptance. But those things will never be enough to fully and finally satisfy you. There will never be enough kisses. There will never be enough awards. There will never be enough trophies. There will never be enough clothes. Ladies, believe it or not, there will never be enough shoes. I realized I was looking at the guys when I said that. Ladies. Here's the third thing you got to see about appetites is that appetites always whisper now and never later. They always say, hey, you need this now. You got to have this now. Don't wait on this. Now's the time. You got to do it now. Right? That's the sense of an appetite. An appetite never says, you know what? Well, the wise and prudent thing to do, let's just step back for a second. Let's gain perspective. Uh, Let's do this later. No. An appetite always whispers, you need me now. You got to have this now. So appetites are good. They're made by God but distorted by sin. They're never fully and finally satisfied. And they always whisper now and never later. But get this. Your response to your appetites will determine the direction and quality of your life. That's really, I think, what this passage is about here in Genesis. So if you have your Bible uh, with you, continue to keep it open or have it there on your app. We're going to look at Genesis 25 beginning in verse 27. And what we see in verses 27 and 28 are a couple of brothers, these sons of Isaac and Rebekah. These are twin brothers, though Esau was born just immediately first. And that's going to come up as an important thing in the story as it goes on. But in these first few verses, you just notice how different these kids are. These, these guys are kind of now becoming grown men. It says, verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. All right, so Esau had a lot of camouflage in his closet. Esau liked to grunt and hunt and fix stuff and work with his hands and get dirt under his fingernails. That was Esau. He was real outdoorsy. Jacob, on the other hand, was more indoorsy. He liked his fingernails to be clean. He liked to cook. He liked to clean. He, looked, he liked to decorate. He liked to, to do more interior type stuff. These guys are very, very, very different. But the key tension in this story doesn't come from those differences as much as it comes from the age differences. Because as I said, even though they're twins, Esau was the firstborn. And therefore, Esau had this thing called a birthright. And that's where a lot of the tension is going to come in this story. How many of you are uh, firstborn children in the room tonight? Man, quite a few of you. Cool, great. Well, you'll connect with this story a bit then, I think, because there's a lot of tension surrounding that. And and here's what you need to know about a birthright, because in our culture, a birthright's not something that we think of very much, but it was a significant part in this ancient Near Eastern culture and a huge part of this story, okay? So in ancient Near Eastern culture, what happened was the firstborn son would receive the birthright. The parents did not get together and think, who's our favorite kid? Let's give it to them. The parents did not get together and think, well, who's our most responsible kid? Let's give it to them. They just said, who's the firstborn son? Let's give it to them. And the birthright had three key things that are significant. The first one 
is the birthright meant you got twice the inheritance of any of your siblings. Now, some of you are like, well, gosh, that wouldn't help me because twice of nothing is nothing still. <laughs> right? Like, that's what we tell our kids. Eh, you know, we're not leaving you much, so twice of nothing is nothing. But in a family like this, where you had Abraham and you had Isaac, I mean, this is significant wealth, right? And especially for a firstborn kid, a firstborn kid not only wants wealth, they want more wealth than everyone else. That's really what matters. And so that comes through the birthright. The second thing that comes through the birthright is not just wealth, but power. Power to be kind of the judge of the family. And whenever there was a family dispute, particularly after mom and dad died, the, the oldest child with the birthright, the oldest son, would have the opportunity to say, this is how it's going to be. This is the rules. Now, some of you who are firstborn kids, you never needed a birthright to just tell everyone what the rules were. You already have done that for years, right? Like you're the champion of that. Your younger siblings are paying a lot of money for therapy right now because of how you knew that you were the judge of the family. All right, so some of you didn't think you needed a birthright, but in that culture, that was part of the birthright as well. The third thing, and this is more mysterious. This is harder to quantify, but it was blessing. A blessing from God. There was this sense that the firstborn son with this birthright received a special blessing. So that's what was at stake here in this birthright was uh, wealth and power and blessing. And it's that birthright that begins to set the tension for this. Now, this is a tension I didn't really understand until I had my own kids because I'm an only child. Any only children tonight? Not many of us, right? Some of you are like, you're an only child? Oh, now I get it. I don't know what it is, but you're probably right. So I'm an only child. I never understood this tension very well. But now that I have kids, I have four kids, uh, Abby, 11, and Caitlin's eight, Mary's three, and Hank is uh, 10 months. And so I've got, I've got those kids. And as I watch Abby and Caitlin in particular, I see something that really helps you understand this story. Here's what I see with my kids, and I, I think this is true of a lot of kind of older, younger sibling relationships, is, is my older daughter never really needs anything from her younger siblings. But they need stuff from her a lot, right? They, they want to hang out with her friends. They want to wear her clothes. They want to use her stuff. She never really needs their stuff. She never really needs their, she didn't want to hang out with their friends, but they want to do it with her, right? And, and yet every now and then, what you see is there's every now and then a moment where my oldest needs something from, my, from her younger sister, and when that happens, there's something that a younger sister or a younger brother does that's really, really smart. So how many of you are younger siblings of any sort? All right, file this away. This is going to be really, this is worth the cost of admission tonight, all right? When your older sibling comes and they say, hey, I need something, that is the perfect moment to negotiate. <laughs> and when you negotiate, you got to go big, first, right? Here's what the wiser, younger brothers do, is they say, okay, you want this? All right, let me have your car. Okay, let's trade rooms. All right, I get your computer. Let me wear that jacket. And that's usually how it goes, right? But, but the, the younger brother asks big, goes huge, right? Because this doesn't happen very often. This is a rare, rare moment. And that's the kind of moment that we pick up in verse 29. It says, once when Jacob was cooking stew... Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew 
for I'm exhausted. Right? Esau's the older brother. He doesn't need anything from Jacob, but all of a sudden, twice he says, I'm exhausted. The word could also be translated, I'm famished. I'm dying here. Oh, give me some of the rad stew. And if you've ever had red lentil stew from the Middle East, it's good. And so he goes, oh, give me some of that stew. The older brother finally needs something. And so the wise younger brother, he goes big. Look at what he says. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Every once in a while, the older brother needs something, and the younger brother wisely goes, hey, give me something big. But, but here's the question. Who would trade their birthright for a bowl of stew? Who would trade future wealth, future power, future blessing from God? Who on earth would trade that for a bowl of stew? And the answer is, you might. I might. People do it all the time. Because appetites always whisper now, never later. They always say, trade what's ultimate for what's immediate. And you see that at work in Esau's response in verse 32, Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is my birthright to me? And at this point, I just want to go, really? I'm about to die. Really? Like you walked in here on your own power, you couldn't make yourself a sandwich? I'm about to die. But, but it always whispers now and never later. And, and this is just the nature. This is what happens. We get sort of blinded by these appetites in these ways that, that psychologists have actually studied and said, in this fallen world, how do we make sense of some of this? And they've come up with a couple terms that just describe exactly what's an ancient phenomenon. One is impact bias. The other is focalism. Impact bias is the idea that, that um, when we have this craving, this desire, this lust, this appetite for something, it our sense of how satisfying it will be gets exaggerated. This is why you have buyer's remorse. Have you ever bought something? You went to the store and you went, oh my gosh, that skirt, it's unbelievable. Oh my gosh, those shoes. Oh my gosh, this, this electronic thing. And you go, this, I have to have this. This will be unbelievable. And then you get it and you go home and you're like, why did I do that? Impact bias. The other thing we have is focalism. We get focused on something and everything else sort of blurs out. Some of you have this right now. And, uh, and, and, and for you, focalism has a name. It's a he or a she. <laughs> Some of you know focalism really well because you just sit there in class and you're like, oh, look at him. He's so cute. Oh, and he's so funny. Oh. And the teacher's calling on you, and it doesn't matter because everything else just blurs away. Focalism. And that's what Esau seems to be imp imp impacted by at this point. He's saying, I have to have this. I'm going to die. What good is a birthright to me? What could I possibly do with a birthright? And this is where I wish that I could somehow magically show up in the story. I wish that I could get into some kind of time-traveling thing and show up right here. And at that point, here's what I do. I'd go, hey, hey, Esau, 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 before you eat that stew, before you trade your birthright for that stew, 
can I talk to you for a second? And I know I'm speaking English and you speak Hebrew, but through the magic of time travel, you understand it. And I'm, listen, Esau, I'm here from the future. That's why I'm wearing funny clothes. And Esau, Esau, I know that you're really hungry and I know you think you're going to die. But before you have that stew, can I, can, I, can I tell you something, Esau? See, I know how this story goes. And Esau, here's something you need to know. You need to know that if you hold on to this birthright, you are going to have all these descendants. These descendants are going to multiply, and, and they're going to actually find their way to Egypt. And in Egypt, there's going to be so many of your descendants there that the people in Egypt are going to be threatened by them, and they're going to enslave them and use them as forced labor. And God is going to see the condition of your descendants, and he's going to have a huge problem with it. And so he's going to raise up this guy named Moses. And I know Moses is a weird-sounding name. It'll sound more normal in the future, but now it sounds weird. But he's going to raise up this guy named Moses. And listen, when Moses asks him, well, who, is, who are you, God? Who, who are you that you're sending me to Egypt? Esau, Esau, before you eat this stew, listen to how God is going to introduce himself to Moses. He's going to say, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Esau, Esau, before you have that stew, this birthright is precious. Esau, you have no idea what God might want to do through you. Don't eat the stew. Don't give up your birthright. But Esau, hey, hey, one more thing. In case that wasn't convincing enough, if we fast forward the story about 2,000 years, even more, here's what's going to happen. God is going to look at his world, and he's going to see that it's so broken and it's so messed up that he is going to actually have to come put on flesh and live here among us. And I know that sounds crazy. It sounds crazy to me, too, and I even have the whole Bible. But, but listen, his, when he comes, his name is going to be Jesus. And he's going to have this follower named Matthew. And Matthew is going to follow him around and listen to his teaching and see him do miracles. And Matthew's going to actually write down a bunch of the stuff that he did. And he's going to write it all there. And, and at the beginning of him telling this story about how God became a man, do you know what he's going to write, Esau? He's going to say, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac was the father of Esau. And Esau... One of his descendants was Jesus. So Esau, Esau, before you eat that stew, do you really want God to introduce himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Don't take the stew. But I can't go back in the story. And here's the reality. When you're faced with these moments, when you're about to trade your future for a bowl of stew, oftentimes there is not someone there going, hey, 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 let's think this through. And here's the thing. Every day of your life, every day of your life, you will be tempted to give up what's ultimate for what's immediate. Every day of your life, you will be tempted to sacrifice the future that God wants for you for something that feels or tastes or smells or experiences good now. Every day you're going to face that, right? This is not a young person thing. There's a lot of gray hair in this room, and I have more and more of it. It's kind of cool. It makes me feel wise or something. So the Bible says something about that. But, but here's the thing. I don't think I have any less temptation from my appetites now than I did when I was 17. 
And I talk to guys who are 70, and they go, I still have all the same appetites. And every day, you're tempted to trade your future for a bowl of stew. So here's the, so, so let, let's ask what, what happened. Verse 33. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Verse 34 is such a sad verse. Did you see it? Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and he rose and went his way. And just like that, the birthright was gone. As fast as the meal had been eaten, the birthright, the future, the wealth, the power, the blessing was gone. Listen, you have no idea what God might want to do in and through you. And I don't want you to trade it for a bowl of stew. So what's our hope? What hope do we have, right? Because I can get up here and we could line up and pass the microphone around and a lot of people go, here's the bowl of stew I traded it for. Here's the bowl of stew I traded it for. And we could all do that. Every person in this room could do that. So, so I don't know if the answer is just say, you know what? I'm just going to be one of the people that makes better decisions. I'm going to develop self-discipline. I'm going to be wiser. I'm going to just do better than Esau. I hope we do, but I'm not sure we can. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. There was another descendant of Abraham. There was another descendant of Abraham who faced hunger, who faced appetites, who experienced everything that you and I experienced. And yet he did it without ever trading his future, without ever trading his relationship with God for something that would just satisfy in the short term. And his name was Jesus. I can't help but think of Jesus when I think of this story. The devil comes to Jesus and the devil says, listen, Jesus, I know you've been in the wilderness for 40 years fasting. I know you haven't eaten. I know you haven't drank. But listen, Jesus, listen, Jesus, take this stone in front of you and turn it into bread. Jesus, you're hungry, right? Hunger's a good appetite. That's not bad. God created it. God would want you to be full, wouldn't he? Take this stone and turn it into bread. And what did Jesus say? He didn't say like Esau, oh, good idea, I'm exhausted, I'm dying, what use is food, right? He said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from his father. And the devil said, well, okay, well, maybe, maybe it's not hunger, that won't work, but, but what about importance? Jesus, you know how important you are? You could throw yourself off of a building and, and God would have to catch you with his angels. Don't you want to show everyone how important you are? Go do it. Jesus says, no, I'm not. I'm not going to do it. The Bible says don't put God to the test. The Bible says, okay, it's not going to be food. It's not going to be importance. What about power? Listen, Jesus, I can give you the kingdoms of this whole world if you'll just bow down and worship me. And I know you think that you're going to get it someday later, but you should get it now. You can have it now, Jesus. And Jesus says, it is written, You should worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Listen, Jesus 
passed the test that Esau failed. Jesus passed the test that you and I failed. Jesus did not give in to his appetites, did not give in to those things. He stayed perfectly obedient to God. And so our answer is not to just look to ourselves and say, well, I'm going to be more disciplined. I'm going to work hard. It's to look to Jesus. Now, the question is, what else do we see when we look to Jesus? When we look to Jesus, here's even more good news. Not only did Jesus do what Esau couldn't and what you and I couldn't, but Jesus then died to forgive us even when we do it. Because here's the thing. When we give in to these appetites, it's actually something that the Bible calls evil. Did you know that? There's There's a place in the book of Jeremiah where God says, let me tell you what's evil. This is evil. Is that you have rejected me, the fountain of living waters, and you've dug out for yourselves cisterns to hold pukey, disgusting water. Right? Get the imagery here, right? It's rained a little bit in the last couple weeks here in Arizona, gloriously, right? And, and, and the imagery is, rather than having this cascading waterfall of pure water just flowing over you. That's who God is. Evil is saying, I don't want that. I want something now. I'm going to dig myself a well and let the rainwater pool in it. That's what we do when we look to these appetites to satisfy us when only Jesus can. That's evil. It's wrong. And so look, Jesus did not just fulfill what we couldn't and what Esau couldn't, he actually then died to forgive us for the evil we've done by looking to appetites to satisfy when they couldn't. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. That's what we sang about. On the cross, Jesus Christ was punished as an evildoer even though he had done no wrong. Here's more good news. Jesus writes new stories. I want to say this especially to those of you who aren't students in the room tonight. Jesus writes new stories. Some of you, you're nodding along through this whole thing and you're going, gosh, they look tired over there, but I hope they're listening. (laughs) Because you know, and you would go back and you would say, oh my gosh, if I had a chance, I would go back and here's what I'd do different. And you know what? You can't go back. But you have a God who writes new stories. I think one of the best things about heaven is going to be God, uh, the Son, gathering people around maybe in a room kind of like this, and saying, all right, we've got another story to share. Who's next? And the next person comes up, and Jesus tells their story. Here's what they were like. Oh, my gosh, it was worse than they'd ever tell you. Here's what it was like, and here's what I did, and here's how I saved them, and here's how I gave them a new hope and a new future. Who's next? Right? I think that's just eternity over and over and over and over, and we just go, oh, my gosh, God, you're amazing. Because God writes new stories. Jesus came to write new stories. And so if you've already felt like I've traded my future for a bowl of stew, it's not too late. You can trust God. You can have a new story. And the last bit of good news that we see when we look at Jesus is that Jesus gives us a new power and a new satisfaction that we can't find anywhere else. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus describes himself, do you know some of the words that he uses to describe it, some of the images? Do you know what he says? He says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the water of life. Jesus uses words like that. Why? Because he says, listen, if you hunger and thirst for me, I'll satisfy you. 
Don't go to those cisterns, those dirty wells that can't hold water. Look to me, Jesus says, as the fountain of living waters. I'll satisfy you. Here's what that means. That means that if you come into relationship with Jesus, not only is his perfect obedience credited to you, not only is he going to forgive your sin, not only is he going to write a new future, but he is also going to satisfy you to the point where you become full of him. And at that moment, when these appetites come, you can go, I've already eaten. I don't need that money. I don't need that distorted view of sex. I don't need those people's approval. I don't need that stuff. I have Jesus and he's enough. He's better. Jesus came to give that to you. I think about the old hymn. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Listen, these appetites are never going away. And how you manage them, how you respond to them, and whether you turn to Jesus to fill you instead of those things filling you, that will determine the direction and the quality of your life. And you have no idea where God wants to take you. Don't miss it. Turn to Jesus. Let him fill you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus and how he is the one who satisfies and nourishes and strengthens us. God, I pray for these students after a long and fun and uh, exhausting weekend. God, I pray that in the midst of all of that, that you would somehow allow the seeds of what have been sown tonight by your word to take root. God, I pray that here among us in this room might be people who would do far more abundantly beyond all that we could imagine, all that their parents could imagine, all that themselves could imagine for your glory and your kingdom. Not because they would be better or smarter or wiser, but because they'd be full of Jesus. So God, would you do that for us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Luke.